From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, a shocking report from the New York Times yesterday that former Secretary of State, now Windsor, John Kerry, informed Iran of Israeli military action against the Islamist nation. We'll talk about it. Also this week marks the completion of President Joe Biden's first 100 days in office, a reflection point for the new administration. Today, on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. Has he achieved that objective? We'll talk about it with former Virginia congressman and now dean of the Liberty University School of Business, Dr. Dave Pratt. And does the Arizona Democratic Party have something to hide when it comes to the results of the past November presidential election? If not, why do they keep suing to prevent the state Senate from conducting an audit of the election? We'll talk about it with Alex Colodin the attorney representing Cyber Ninjas, the company the Arizona Senate has contracted to lead that audit. Also, we are once again pushing for a vote on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Act. Now, one argument against it by the left is that it doesn't really happen. Well, really? Well, tell that to Claire Caldwell, an abortion survivor. She joins me today to talk about her new book, Survivor, an abortion survivor's surprising story of choosing forgiveness and finding redemption. And finally, the U.S. Supreme Court hearing oral arguments today on a major case involving the privacy of donors to nonprofit organizations. Today in 2021, sad to say, it could be a life or death issue that their identities have been disclosed. Think about religious charities. Think about medical organizations that may take views about masking, about vaccinations. In in our very divisive times, it's tough to identify with certainty a charity that is non-controversial. How might the court's decision impact you? We'll be joined by John Birch, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, who was a part of arguing that case today. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on the free speech platform of Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins. And by the way, with social media, you never know who's going to be deplatformed or canceled next. So to stay in touch with us, text the word STAND to 67742. That's the word stand to the number 67742. That way you can stay in contact with us. We'll send you updates, alerts, so that you can be engaged in defending this republic of ours. Uh, Message and data uh, rates may apply. Reply stop to cancel, help to help, and visit frc.org slash text for terms and conditions of our privacy policy. All right, in leaked audio with lengthy remarks from the Iranian foreign minister, Mohammad Zarif, revealed that former Secretary of State John Kerry had informed him of more than 200 Israeli Israeli covert operations in Syria. This is shocking. Now, many knew that John Kerry was no friend of Israel, but this would suggest that he is an adversary. Joining me now to talk more about this is former member of Congress from Virginia, Dr. Dave Bratt, who is now dean at Liberty University School of Business. Dr. Bratt, welcome back to the program. You bet. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me on. All right. 
foreign, I mean, the foreign minister of Iran being given information about one of our key allies from our secretary of state. How do you explain that? Yeah, well, not much shocks me anymore uh, coming from the left. And so I think it's important just to go over, you know, some of the enemies of Iran, the USA, Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, the allies, Hezbollah, Lebanon, Russia, Syria. And so, you know, the, the, the good thing about uh, President Trump, uh, whether you love him or hate him, he was very clear and drew clear lines across common sense, even in foreign policy. And uh, so now uh, it's everybody's best guess. What's Kerry really up to? Why, why in the world uh, the communications with Iran, you know, he, he wants to save his namesake, uh, you know, peace deal, treaty, et cetera. So that's the immediate self-interest, but it, it, it's always economics. And so now everybody's going to be scratching their head and searching for that nugget. And uh, it, the left, it's very hard to find a logic other than uh, obtaining an increase of power. And so that's that's the answer. But uh, now we have to search for the process. Uh, writing for the uh, National Review, uh, David Harsani says, um, he says this, he says, we know now that former Secretary of State John Kerry isn't merely a critic of Israel. He is an adversary. I mean, one, two times, 200 times. It would almost yeah. sound as if he were an agent working against the United States and our ally Israel. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the, the new alignment isn't USA or, any, or Republican Democrat. The, the new alignment is globalists global elites uh, versus the American people and, and you know, the, the mainstream people in China versus uh, their global elites and totalitarian government. And so, you know, what what is Kerry up to? I mean, he, he's carrying out the, the will of the global elites. I think that that's the part that we can be sure of. And uh, if you just go down the, just kind of the common sense trail, right, what, why, why Iran... How could you plausibly do it's a, it's just classical deconstruction. The left is deconstructing uh, the power of the West. And if you look at what is the West, it's the Judeo-Christian tradition coupled with Athens and the reason that comes from the Greeks. And the uh, the alignment of those two uh, sensibilities, the Judeo-Christian religious tradition and Greek reason have given have been the guardrails for Western Civ for 2000 years. And they served us well. And Kerry, it appears, and the, the left, that no longer liberals, are doing everything they can tear that apart. Israel, obviously, uh, and Israel in particular, if you go to Israel, uh, they were very friendly to President Trump and to U.S. principles. The Judeo-Christian tradition is alive and well in Israel. And so they believe in absolute truth. Uh, they have a free press. They have human rights. They treat uh, minorities in their country different than uh, their minorities are treated in other countries. And so if you want to tear down the West, you go after Israel, you go after the United States, you go after free press. You do everything that the far left is doing right now, now on the international stage as well. Now, it's been a while since I've been in the business, but back when I was working in the anti-terrorist business, we worked closely with uh, Israel trading information, uh, intel that we would call it. I mean, I would think that 
possibly Israel is going to be very reluctant to share intelligence with the U.S. government now. Yeah, I I would think so. I think they I mean, they're so good. I I always assume they knew this in real time and uh, they they live in a tough world. And uh, I I think the U.S., you know, in my dream world, we have to learn to act a little bit more like Israel. Uh, The the, the Christian church has become weak. If you ask Christians what foreign policy is, what are our interests, where are we aligned? Why does it matter to you and your kid's future? I don't know how good of a job we would do. Uh, Israel does not uh, suffer that that, that same well, problem. I think we, we because they live on the verge of extinction. Yep, I mean, they, right. they live in a very yep. tough neighborhood and they've learned to yep. be tough. Um, yep. uh, culturally speaking, we live in a tough neighborhood and it's time we get uh, tough As well. Uh, One final question before I move on to uh, Biden's first 100 days. Uh, Is there a chance here that John Kerry has violated the law? No, I I think so. Uh, President Trump called him out. Uh, It it, uh, I I don't know if it matters. I hate to say that. Right. I mean, we have uh, a, a, a congressman of the U.S. Congress right now that's been sleeping with a China spy. It's all been confirmed. It's all acknowledged. It's out in the press. And he's still on our intelligence committee and Pelosi and the Democrats won't do anything about it. And so uh, even when it's when it's obvious, uh, I, I this is why elections matter. And uh, I, I wish it was an aberration, but we're losing the culture war in spite of these headlines. And that's yeah. the part that uh, has us scratching our heads, of course. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the contrast is so clear. I mean, you go if you were to read these headlines on the southern border. You would know how how troubled our nation is. We're 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 giving cues to our enemies who want to blow up the great Satan and the little yeah. Satan, uh, right. while our borders are porous. It, absolutely absolutely. Uh, insane, uh, Doctor Brett. Speaking of insanity, speaking of the first one hundred days of the uh, Biden administration. I mean, we've got a record number of executive actions, 40 executive orders, 62 total executive actions. Um, This guy has been I mean, he emerged from his basement, you know, labeled a moderate to show off his uh, super liberal uh, administration. I mean, this guy has left uh, Barack Obama in the dust when it comes to liberal policies. Yeah. And and. uh I, I actually don't consider him a, a liberal at all. I, I used to like liberals. I never lost a friend uh, sure. with a liberal. We'd have heated debates over the sides of government or something like that. JFK, uh, no problem. These are hardened leftists we're talking about. And the activism and, and the consequential nature of all the legislation, all of it has to do with one thing. And it doesn't have to do with the welfare of the American people, right? It doesn't have to do with your wage rates, or your kids' education. In fact, most all of it harms your welfare. And so we have a, a tsunami of a disaster on the southern border. Uh, the, the left says we got a mask problem and a COVID problem. And yet the only group that can break the law, and this, this came up yesterday, right? They, they are, all the folks that are coming across illegally are breaking the COVID laws uh, as we speak. Uh, and then you go to China, right? The globalist alliance there, and we all know Biden's uh, and the and the laptop uh, with all the issues uh, that show his complicity with China and his twenty hours of uh, dinner with Xi Jinping, uh, et cetera, a country that's declared war against us. 
uh, and the, the the assault on First Amendment yeah. rights, uh, freedom and, and religion, it, it all goes in one direction. It's assault on our power. Yeah. It, it's not policy. Yeah. They want power. Well, that, and that goes to the leftist agenda. I mean, they have yeah. to take out religion. They have to take out yes. the family. And, and over half of his executive actions deal with the issues of life, family, yeah. and religious freedom. Uh, so yep. clearly they're going at the very foundation of what they might consider resistance so that they can advance their social policy. So very quickly, Dr. Brett, yep. what do we need to do? How do how do Christians respond to this? Yeah, well, we, we just need to go back to the basics. I mean, uh, open up the book, pray, go to the word of God. And then, uh, you know, we made we made some key choices in Western City. We went with the family as the basic unit of analysis versus the Greek city state. Uh, the family has been under attack, is under attack, and has been decimated. And so the we need to, you know, quit spending as much time on the bell choirs and some of the trivial matters in the church and deal with these substantial matters that elections have consequences, uh, that the constitutional republic you live under is under threat right now, that your religious liberties are under threat. If a church is dealing with those issues, I don't know what planet we're living on. And so the, yeah. the church needs to wake up. Uh, Romans 13, you are the sovereign. God has put the sovereign there to rule and keep order. You are that sovereign. You have a responsibility to live up to that God-ordained responsibility. More pulpits need to preach that so Christians are aware of that, that responsibility that we have in this nation uniquely given that right. Dr. Dave Bratt, as always, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, Tony. Thank you. All right, folks, don't go away. Coming back on the other side of the break, checking in in Arizona. Next. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org slash explainer. That's frc.org slash explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. 
Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, I, um, I, I smell a rat in, uh, in Arizona. Over the weekend, an independent audit of the 2.1 million general election ballots in Arizona's Maricopa County commenced despite continued lawsuits designed to stop it. Now, the subpoenas needed to order... Uh, needed in order to execute the audit have been pending since mid-December and were ruled as valid on February the 25th. Since then, lawmakers have been working on the specifics for the audit. Now, the purpose of which is to ensure the integrity of Arizona's election system. Listen, not to overturn the 2020 presidential election, despite claims by some on the left. So the, the, the thing was, we got to get to the bottom of any of the problems. You know, we've talked about this before. Forty-seven states have introduced more than 350 laws designed to address some of the irregularities that came up in the last election. So how are you going to fix it unless you can clearly define the problem? And so I commend the Arizona Senate for wanting to say, look, this has nothing to do with what was what happened in November in terms of overturning the election results. It's about what's happening going forward. In fact, that was my counsel to the Trump people was that, look, as disappointed as we were in what happened in November, there came a point where you had to pivot and look at the future of the integrity of elections. That's exactly what Arizona is doing. And I commend them. But I want there's something here. Like I said, I smell a rat. Joining me now to talk about the audit is Alex Culloden. He is the attorney for Cyber Ninjas, the lead auditor. He's also president of the Culloden law group uh, that is uh, handling the uh, the legal aspects for this audit. Um, Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so, so why the opposition to simply wanting to do an audit? So I think that this probably comes down to H.R. 1. Um, as you know, uh, Arizona is the state uh, for which Kristen Cinema is the U.S. Senator, and H.R. Uh, 1 doesn't stand a prayer of becoming law without her vote. And so when Democrats rattle the sword about Plan Act violations, voter privacy allegations um, that, this, that the state legislature is allegedly violating, 
what they're really trying to do is is convince the public and Senator Sinema of the necessity of a federal takeover of our election systems, which we absolutely cannot allow. So I want to make sure I've got the facts right on this, because this, as I said, this looks very reasonable to me, just wanting to go back, do this audit, see if there were problems in the mechanical aspects of the election in terms of the machines, were there any vulnerabilities, were there anything that were not accounted for, um, you know, were these tabulated correctly? What other things might be found or what other things are we looking for in this audit? So I like to say that as the attorney for the audit team, it's, it's not my place to, to presuppose what the audit may or may not find. Uh, right. you know, what we, what we want to know is were our electronic voting systems compromised in some way? Were there counterfeit ballots? Uh, you know, was, was the count wrong? We're doing a, a complete hand recount. Um, things like this. Essentially, the audit is looking at Almost every one of the major allegations made in litigation during the 2020 election cycle and is, is actually checking to see, was that allegation correct? Was it not correct? And that's why we call it a full forensic audit, because it actually does address all of those items or almost all of them. So will you be looking at, for instance, chain of custody where ballots were dropped off in drop boxes or other means? Will, will, I mean, will you be looking at all that, that, that make sure that everything was followed according to the law? So with respect to chain of custody issues, I don't have a good answer to that question. I don't believe so, uh, but I couldn't tell you for certain. So when you when you. Um, Start on this process. Um, This is a public process. And so, as I understand it, this will be open to the public. It'll be uh, the live cams will be on there. There'll be, you know, witnesses. And so uh, there's no uh, hanky panky here. You're either going to find it or you're not. Yes. So there are live stream uh, camera feeds of the counting floor 24 seven members of the public uh, at present as observers at all times uh, when ballots are being handled on that floor. Uh, and so we like to think that we have, uh, have an extremely transparent process as, as one of the Senate's liaisons to the process, John Brakey always says, the goal is for elections to be transparent, accurate, and verifiable. And that's what we want our audit to be. So l- let me go back uh, for a moment to one of the objections. You mentioned this, that the, the Democrats have raised to this, that this would um, violate the privacy of, of voters. I mean, how, how is that the case? How would that do that? The, the truly ironic thing is that almost every item of voter data that they say might allegedly violate the privacy of voters is freely available from the Maricopa County recorder to any interested political organization, uh, political cause, political party. These are public records uh, with very limited exceptions. And yet the Democrats don't bother to inform the courts of that fact, which is to me astounding. So as you go back, this is all political. The opposition is all political. To me, to me, it certainly appears so. And I, and I think that's sad because this shouldn't be a political process. You know, the audit's leadership, it has both Democrats and Republicans on it. And, and, and there's 
there's different views on what, if anything, the audit will find, right? This is this is right. a process to to discover, you know, how our election system is doing, not right. to advance the candidate or party. And, and that's good for everybody concerned so that we can have confidence in the system that it's working the way it should work. I mean, that's Absolutely. the way I see it. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. We'll be watching this uh, carefully. Uh, quickly, how, how long should this take? Uh, the, uh, the the portion at Veterans Memorial Coliseum, which is the hand count, uh, should take about 20 days. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be watching that very closely. Alex, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Folks, don't go away. On the other side of the break, we'll be talking with one of those people who, uh, according to the left, does not exist. Claire Caldwell joins us, an abortion survivor, out with a new book. She's going to be talking with us about it here next on Washington Watch. Stay tuned for that conversation. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Hey, we've been, uh, we, we've talked about this a couple of times in the new Congress. The House of Representatives, uh, or the Republicans in the House of Representatives, are pushing once again for a vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, uh, which makes sure newborn babies who survive attempted abortions get the same medical care as any other baby. Now, there's a discharge petition because Nancy Pelosi refused 80 times to bring this bill to the floor in the last Congress. There is a discharge petition, which if 218 members sign, it will automatically 
go to the House floor for a vote, despite Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats' opposition. Uh, currently, the discharge petition has 209 signatures, just uh, three of the uh, 212 Republicans uh, have not yet signed, but they're expected to sign. That means we've got to pick up uh, a few Democrats uh, to uh, to sign the discharge petition. One of the arguments that is often used saying to dismiss this effort, uh, we don't need it, never happens, don't, don't need it. Why are you making a problem out of something that doesn't exist? Well, it does exist. In fact, my next guest is a survivor of an abortion of a, of twins. She was one that survived and she's telling her story in a new book, Survivor, an abortion survivor's surprising story of choosing forgiveness and finding redemption. It comes out tomorrow. Joining me now is Claire Caldwell. Claire, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Claire, I want you to very quickly share your story. I don't want to give the book away because I I know your story and I know the book's going to be, the book is great, but share our, with our listeners, a sense of, uh, of your story. Well, thank you. I uh, am adopted and I grew up in an incredible home with parents who uh, just raised me on love and grace and forgiveness. And we, my sister and I, who's uh, my sister's also adopted, we knew that one day our birth mothers might become a part of our story. And we were excited about that possibility. But little did I know that meeting my birth mother at the age of 21 uh, would come with the most shocking news, something that I had never thought about, never heard of until um, I heard my own story of survival. Uh, I sat across uh, the room from my birth mother as uh, she shared about being 13 years old and pregnant with me. And the tears that she cried as she described an abortion procedure, a DNA abortion procedure that dismembered um, my twin's body that was meant to dismember mine if they had known about me, um, how it hurt her. And, um, you know, during abortion procedures, med- uh, ultrasound technology is not often used uh, to guide the abortion procedure. And so I was undetected that day during that abortion procedure. But my body survived. Miraculously, the abortion instruments never touched my body. And I was born at 30 weeks, weighing three pounds. I had a dislocated hip and club feet. And um, I've had a life time of complications um, from my twinness, from the uh, trauma, from that abortion procedure. Um, And so it was the most shocking moment of my life when I learned that um, the unborn baby was a human person like me and that I had not only been unwanted and rejected, but I had actually been aborted. Uh, But I chose to forgive my birth mother that day and um, share my story so that people can see the humanity of the unborn baby and also the humanity of the abortion survivor as we talk about the Born Alive um, Act. So you really had two things to forgive your mother. I mean, you you know, you you had the sense of rejection of being given up for adoption, but you had no idea that there was an effort to uh, abort you. You forgave your mother. But prior to that, you really weren't that engaged from a standpoint of uh, public policy and the issue of abortion. How did that change for you? 
I had never thought about the person who had been affected by abortion as being someone like me. I mean, I remember thinking the person who's been affected by abortion, the woman who's had an abortion, uh, that will never be my story. And yet here I was meeting my birth mother for the first time and learning that that was my story. That was her story. And that meant that my entire family, uh, including my children now, had been affected by abortion. And it opened my eyes. I began to meet other people because I was wondering, am I alone? Am I the only one who's been affected by abortion? Am I the only person who survived an actual abortion procedure? And over the next few years, I learned that I'm not alone, that there are women like my birth mother, hundreds of thousands of women who regret their abortion procedure, but there are also people like me, people who have survived abortion procedures walking the face of this earth, and they're living in our communities, and they're in our families, and our schools, et cetera. And so I, I developed a heart for what abortion is doing in our country, and if my name and my face and my story and my humanity can make a difference. Um, I was I was willing to begin to speak up. And so I did little by little. I have shared my testimony and um, the response has been incredible as people are able to humanize the unborn child through the face and the name and the story of an abortion survivor like myself. And I can assure you, Claire, you are making a difference. Your story is touching the hearts and minds of many people all across this country. And we thank you for uh, sharing that story. Very quickly, where can people get a copy of your book? Anywhere books are sold. I went by Barnes & Noble yesterday and they said they have them in the back ready. And so, um, yeah, you can find uh, all the bookstores at clairecolwell.com. Very good. We'll encourage people to pick up a copy. Claire, good to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Tony. And folks, pick up a copy, Compelling Story, and share with friends. Don't go away. We're back with more after this. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins, live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org slash Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. 
Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins. All right, uh, lots happening. By the way, I, I want to go back uh, before I bring in our next topic. The, uh, the first 100 days of the Biden administration, we actually have some resources available for you that will unpack about five pages long of all of the stuff that the Biden administration has done. As I mentioned, 62 total executive actions, uh, over half of those dealing with uh, issues of, uh, of life, human sexuality, religious freedom, uh, moving at breakneck pace. And so you can find that. Go to TonyPerkins.com and uh, you can download. And we've listed them, date um, and, and all of the actions that are taken on the life issue, on family, religious freedom, and uh, the issues uh, pertaining to uh, to human sexuality. I mean, this it's it's shocking when you look at it in its totality, because the Biden administration makes the Obama administration look like they were moderates. I mean. By, Obama was was liberal, but he didn't do all of this stuff up front. If you if you recall, he did it mostly on the way out the door. Now he did some bad stuff along the way, but really in the eleventh hours when he jammed through all this stuff, Biden's doing it at the start of his administration. What does that tell you about the progression that we'll see from his administration? By the way, we're going to be focusing on this uh, pretty much every day this week. Unpacking some of the things again. You can get a copy of this. Go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the links over. Okay. Earlier today, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the consolidated cases of two conservative nonprofits that are challenging California's donor disclosure requirement. Now, under this requirement, nonprofits soliciting donations in California must be required. They're required every year to submit reports that include lists of names and addresses of their top donors. Hmm, wonder what they're going to do with that. Well, we know what they're doing with it because they've targeted 
many of these donors. Americans for Prosperity and the Thomas More Law Center are the two cases before the court. They say the requirements unnecessarily open up donors to harassment and intimidation for engaging in activity protected by the First Amendment. And I know that's true because that's exactly what's happened. With me now to uh, talk about this case, case is John Bursch. He is a senior counsel and vice president of appellate advocacy with the Alliance Defending Freedom. He is representing Thomas More Law Center in this case before the Supreme Court. John, welcome back to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, John, in reading through, I listened to uh, some of the oral arguments today and then reading through the transcripts. I mean, it sounds like uh, both on the ideological right and left, there are concerns about what's happening there in California. Yeah, it was really remarkable that all nine justices asked questions and made comments that were pretty favorable to the plaintiffs and hostile to the state of California. And that's consistent with the friend of the court briefs that got filed in this case. Uh, There were over 250 groups in more than 40 briefs that filed in support of the Law Center and the Foundation. And they ranged all across the ideological spectrum, um, from conservative groups to the ACLU to the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And more so than any Supreme Court case that I've ever seen, folks on the you know progressive, libertarian, liberal, conservative wing didn't matter. They may not have ever agreed on anything before, and yet they all agree that California's compelled donor policy is unconstitutional. Now, give our listeners a sense of where this policy came from. Well, this was originally the policy of then Attorney General Kamala Harris, who is now our vice president. And uh, she said that an upfront disclosure requirement that would allow her to collect tens of thousands of these lists uh, from charities affecting thousands and thousands of donors, um, hundreds of thousands to millions over time, was necessary to prevent charitable fraud. Uh, But the record at trial, there were two trials in this case, established two things. One, California never used that information prior to filing a complaint. And two, once they filed a complaint and initiated an investigation, they were very easily able to get this information from the impacted charity. And so it was basically a a solution in search of a problem. Uh, In the meantime, you had all these Schedule Bs with all the donor information on them in the California Attorney General Office's data banks, where they were mistakenly put up online, where they were routinely, routinely hacked. Um, you know, essentially the office leaked that information like a sieve. And what that does is it chills donors. Uh, it either causes them not to give or to try to give at contribution amounts that might stay below the Schedule B threshold, or it forces charities not to solicit in California at all. And to put a restriction on their ability to speak to California residents, you know, unless they turn over this information, they just can't do that under the First Amendment. So just to be be clear on this, this was a unilateral decision by the California Attorney General, then uh, Attorney General Kamala Harris. She did this on her own. This wasn't an act of the legislature. Correct. Uh, She did this unilaterally. It was a bureaucratic policy. Um, It was then followed uh, up with... uh, Attorney General Becerra, who is now the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Biden administration, he continued the policy and litigated it vigorously up the chain. Um, There's now a new AG in California. As of last night, they have not backed off the position in the 24 hours that they've been in office. Um, but, but the entire time, there was never a legislative judgment. There wasn't even an act of the governor. It, it was simply bureaucratic nonsense by folks who had all kinds of other things that they could be doing rather than harass charities for their private donor information. 
So, uh, John, you mentioned the security issues. Justice Samuel Alito pointed out that the district court actually found that California security lapses were, quote unquote, shocking. And uh, then Justice Sotomayor actually added that reasonable donors might no longer have faith in California. Yeah, I thought that was remarkable that she added that because she might not be as sympathetic as some other justices to the, the First Amendment interests at stake here, but she even understood the chill. You know, and that again goes back to the diversity of political ideologies that were represented in the amici and also is well established with the trial evidence. You know, Thomas More Law Center, for instance, had testimony from clients and from employees who had been doxxed in all kinds of ways. They had been threatened. They had gotten uh, harassed. They had in one uh, instance even had an assassination attempt against them because of their religious ideology. Uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation pointed to much of the same evidence and the amici briefs were just replete with, with that kind of information about all kinds of organizations who had been publicly harassed uh, simply because of the positions that they staked out. And when you do that, and then you're looking to donors saying, hey, I want you to give a lot of money, but it's possible that you could end up on the California Internet site where everybody can see you. Yeah, that, that's just a huge problem. One thing that wasn't discussed that argument is that it's not simply an issue of those who are fearful of harassment and intimidation. There are those who, for religious reasons, may not want their donations exposed publicly. They want to keep those confidential. And you may just be a person who doesn't want to be solicited by every charity under the sun right. when they find out that you're a high-rolling donor that gave a lot of money to somebody. So the what was the primary thrust, thrust of the... Um plaintiffs in this case in terms of, uh, you know, defending their association? Is it was it an issue of an association, free speech, or a combination of both? It was a combination of both, and it was rooted in a, an old case from 1958 involving the NAACP, which also filed an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs. Uh, in the NAACP, it was the Jim Crow era, and Alabama and other southern states were demanding that they uh, hand over their membership list as a condition of doing business in those states. And that had predictable results in the Jim Crow South. The NAACP lost 50% and more of its members in those states. And the U.S. Supreme Court recognized that the First Amendment protects the freedom of association and that in those cases, the demand for membership lists was chilling the First Amendment rights, not only of the NAACP chapters, but also of their supporters. And that was unconstitutional. So you fast forward to today, and that, that's really a direct analog of what's happening here. Now, John, you mentioned that uh, the AG's office, uh, then AG Harris, now Vice President Harris, claimed that this was necessary to thwart uh, fraud. Uh, has any other state determined that this is the only way that they can fight fraud in uh, charitable contributions? Uh, there's very few. Uh, there was a multi-state amici brief that was filed by uh, 27 states, I believe, uh, that explained that California is one of only four states that does this. And even in the other states, they've got some parameters that make the disclosure requirement a little bit more limited, at least. Uh, you know, California's is as broad as it possibly can be. It extends to any charity in the country, um, even if their top donors don't reside in California. Um, so the... Uh, the, the notion that somehow this was necessary for them to ferret out fraud is just completely inconsistent with the experience, not only of all these other states, but of California itself. Uh, those trial court findings that said they didn't need the Schedule Bs up front because they could easily get them when they started an investigation, uh, th those weren't just 
you know, random musings of the trial court judge. It was based on the actual testimony of the witnesses that the attorney general's office provided to testify in this case. Um, so it, really is crazy. Is it far fetched, John, to say that, you know, with, when you've got you know, two AGs that we've had, Kamala Harris and uh, Javier Becerra, that I mean, very, very liberal, I mean, not not even just slightly liberal, very liberal leftist, that they would be in control of this type of information and that there might be those working within their agencies that, you know, I want to make sure people understand what you were saying. Your mom, this is not just donors in California. They would have access to donor information, top donors of organizations, even if those people did not live in California. There could be somebody within their agency that would like to release that information like we've seen happen before with the IRS. Yeah, and that's the problem, you know, and, and we've seen the consequences of those who have their public information exposed, uh, you know, cost the Mozilla CEO his job because he donated to uh, um, an organization in California that supported. And, and pro- the Prop 8, I remember that that right. well, and, and just although recently, he's got a new a new system out, Brave, and I highly recommend it for uh, people. He bounced back and he's got a great uh, uh, the service there called Brave, so it works uh, works well, but that's exactly right. what happened in that case. Yeah, and let me give you an example that happened just in the last week. Uh, there was a paramedic who donated $10 through, uh, you know, essentially GoFundMe. It wasn't that particular platform, but it was similar, you know, a charitable funding vehicle for Kyle Rittenhouse's defense fund. And the donation was anonymous, but that server got hacked. The information was made public. The employer of that paramedic is now investigating them to see if they violated any of their policies because they made a $10 donation. And a reporter showed up on the paramedic's front doorstep to ask how he could be such a terrible person that he would give money to Kyle Rittenhouse's defense fund. Um, that, that's what you're looking at when you give government officials broad access to confidential donor information. And and I know that several of the justices made that point, and in particular, uh, Justice Thomas pointed out that, you know, today all these different groups are labeled, you know, whether they're uh, a racist, white supremacist, a homophobic, that these labels are put out there and this information being, you know, released, uh, you know, causes people to be targeted. This is could very well be used as a tool to choke off funding to conservative organizations that the left disagrees with. Yeah, there's no question that that's a risk. And I thought Justice Gorsuch made an excellent point along those same lines, that if California would prevail in this case, then just donors is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the government would be able to ask for all of the people that are on your Christmas card list, or they could ask for all the people that you've dated. If they could come up with some trumped up reason why the government had an interest in acquiring that information. Um, you know, an analogy that I use with the non-lawyers to help them understand this uh, is that law enforcement officials would love to have a, an excuse without a warrant to randomly go into houses whenever they wanted to and just see if any criminal conduct is taking place there. That would certainly help them ferret out if crimes are being committed and maybe even stopping some before they started because of deterrence. But we would never allow that because that's such a huge intrusion on constitutional rights for such a minimal government benefit. You know, it's a, a radically disproportionate ratio. Um, and so we don't. We, we require the government to go to court with probable cause to get a warrant from a judge signed and then um, served so that they can have the right to violate somebody's rights. And here in California, well, they do that exact same thing. They can do it all after the fact. Well, actually, to uh, to elaborate on your analogy there, it would actually require people to check in with the police every day and give them their daily planner 
yeah. that's what would be required of us. I mean, it is very, very uh, invasive. Uh, very quickly, before we run out of time, John, um, how big of a decision will this be one way or the other? Well, it could be very big. Um, you know, it could be a, a little more narrow. They could say it's unconstitutional only as applied to these two plaintiffs because they were able to show the chill. Um, I got the feeling that the court wanted to go broader than that. Um, but really, the, the big victory here, I think, would be to see the court um, expound on and develop more of its free association jurisprudence. They're pretty good on free speech generally. Uh, but free association is a right that has kind of been left to the dustbin. We haven't heard much about it since the NAACP right. case and a few later cases it, in the 50s and 60s. And in many ways, that is even a more important aspect of this, given this cancel culture and what's happening in the world today, is that people have the freedom to associate uh, with others of like mind without uh, being targeted, uh, losing their jobs and and incomes. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We'll be watching this uh, very, very carefully as the decision comes out probably in June of, uh, of next year. Uh, of this year, actually, uh, we expect a decision by June 30th when the court recesses for the summer. So definitely keep your eyes open for that. And I'd be happy to come back and talk through the opinion. Absolutely. Look forward to talking to you then. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Hey, folks, I want to thank you for joining us as well. I encourage you to check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. And again, check out the 100 days of the Biden administration. Look what they have been up to and share that with your friends and continue to pray for our nation. We need it. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.